0: Today we are continuing in our fall series of messages from the book of Acts. And I want to read again the quote that I read from last week. This is from Michael Green. He is Senior Research Fellow at Oxford University and wrote this compelling book entitled Thirty Years That Changed the World. He says, three crucial decades in world history, that's all it took. In the years between 8033 33 and 8064, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread to every corner of the globe and to more than 2 billion putative adherents." It has left an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and, of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. Three decades, a poor group of peasants gathered together in that upper room, and in three generations, or I should say, three decades, one generation, they turned the world upside down. Last week we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Even though it's titled Acts of the Apostles, it really should be, in my opinion, Acts of the Holy Spirit, because that was the place from which all of the book flowed: the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I invite you to open your Bibles to our focus this morning, Acts chapter one, verse 12 through 14. Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background of what has transpired prior to this. The book of Acts begins with Jesus walking on earth after he has been raised. Jesus died on Passover. He was raised three days later on the wave sheaf offering. Fifty days after the wave sheaf offering is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus was walking and talking with the disciples for 40 days after he was resurrected. The Bible does not tell us the nature of all the conversations they had. It must have been something else to be there with the living, breathing Jesus who was just crucified, not too uh, far from that moment. And Jesus gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that they're going to take the gospel to the entire world. And then on the 40th day, he's walking with them, and Jesus ascends into heaven. The Bible tells us in verse 12 what they do after Jesus has just ascended. They go back to Jerusalem, and we pick it up in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Oliveth which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Eleven disciples, a handful of women, plus Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brothers of Jesus, that's what the Bible tells us, are gathered in that upper room, and they gathered together to pray. The Bible tells us, and I looked this up, brushed off my seminary Greek, oh, have mercy, and looked at the Greek word. These all continued with one accord in prayer. And I actually like the NIV in this translation. You have it there in your study guide. And by the way, in your bulletin is a study guide to help you to remember the, some of the quotations in the text from today. And so I invite you to pull it out this time as we go to our key passage for our study here this morning. If you don't have a study guide, raise your hand. We have some individuals with some extras that can get you some at this time. Don't have a study guide? Okay, great. Everyone has a study guide. So let's fill in the blanks here. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 from the NIV. The, they all joined together, and what's the word? Constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In other words, this was not a prayer session where they prayed for ceremonial reasons and then said, okay, how do we divide up Jerusalem? Jesus said, we're going to take the gospel to the entire world. They prayed and then get down to business. The Bible tells us and indicates when you look at the original language in this text that this was a meeting and when you read the book of Acts, it seems to indicate because when the day of Pentecost fell or the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, they were still in the upper room, which seems to indicate and imply that for 10 days after Jesus was ascended or had ascended, For 10 days, the disciples and these women and the brothers of Jesus, and later on it says there were 120 that were totally gathered in the upper room, they gathered in that upper room, and their primary function, even though they took care of other business, as you can see later, they picked a replacement for Judas, their primary function was to pray. And as the NIV says, to pray Constantly. Now I want us to just gather and reflect upon the implications of what is taking place. They have just been given the most bold and audacious task by Jesus to take the gospel to the world. They have no money, no education, no resources, and yet After Jesus has ascended, giving the promise of the Holy Spirit, they go back to Jerusalem and they hold a prayer vigil. Not a prayer vigil where prayer is the supplemental activity, but a prayer vigil where prayer is the primary activity for those 10 days. Now, as I reflected on this in my own walk, I asked myself the question, what do you, or what do I, David Shin, what is my modus operandi? Is that a word? Anyways. What is my methodological approach when I am given a task or a problem? I'll tell you my approach. It's very Western. I gather together with a group of individuals. I pray because after all, I'm a pastor. I need to pray, right? I pray for ceremonial reasons. Lord, please bless us. We're about to do this very difficult work to take the gospel to all of Anchorage. Oh, we have great tasks before us. All of Alaska, please help us. And then, okay, and spend the majority of our time planning and strategizing and so forth, and then we do a ceremonial prayer at the end, and and we wonder why we get the same results every time. In the book of Acts, it indicates that the first thing they did when they got back to Jerusalem, being given the most impossible task ever given to man, They got back, and they spent significant time in prayer where prayer was not the secondary activity, but where prayer was the primary activity. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The Bible is not indicating that we should not strategize and plan. All of those things are good. You can see that happening later in the book of Acts, but we live in an age where we focus on doing rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, I'm convinced that we can't do this any better than the early church. Prayer was not peripheral to the early church and the apostles. Prayer was central. You think about it. Michael Green's quotation, how all of civilization and and, and society and medicine and culture has been impacted by Christianity, and it was born out of three decades, it was really born out of a prayer meeting. Not the prayer meetings we have in the Adventist church, but a real prayer meeting, where prayer is the primary activity. The entire Christian revolution was born out of a prayer session. Just wrap our minds around the implications of this. They gathered around together, and this was not delegated. These were the 12 apostles. They didn't delegate prayer and say, oh, you peon over there, you pray. I got business I need to take care of. The leadership modeled prayer. This was the who's who in the early Christian church. And they gathered together in that upper room and were baptized with fire. And the rest is history. Let's move on in our study guide. In Acts, prayer was central. It was not the addendum. It was not the thing that you did ceremonially in the beginning. And if we're honest with our, ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, so much of my praying is just autopilot. Have you ever been in a situation or a meal where you pray and you forgot that you prayed? And then I turn to my wife. I'm just being transparent. This is your pastor. I'm just being transparent. I turn to my wife and I said, did, did we pray? She said, yes, we prayed. Oh, I forgot. Uh, It's just autopilot. And this is the way that the 21st century church in many ways functions in the Western world because we don't really believe in prayer. It is just a ceremonial rite of passage that we do. It's this mystical, just ethereal, irrational aspect of the Christian experience that we just can't grasp or wrap our minds around, and so we prefer to do, to plan, to strategize, which are all essential. But the disciples did not spend 10 days strategizing and planning as essential as those activities are. Prayer was central. It was the primary activity in that upper room. And I would argue the early church. Moving on. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. 31 times. Out of 28 chapters, 20 of them, prayer is mentioned. It is implicit many more times. And moving on, prayer in the life of the apostles. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The context of this is there were some services of the church that were not being rendered efficiently. A certain population were not being distributed resources, and so there was an uproar in the early church. And the disciples, the apostles, made this statement. They decided to delegate those services and created the position of deacons so that they could focus on their primary activities. And here it is in the book of Acts. What were their primary activities? We will give ourselves continually to what? To prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, the function of the minister, and I'm preaching to myself, The function of the minister, one of the primary functions of the minister, is to spend significant time in prayer. That is a function of the minister, and it cannot be delegated. They delegated other responsibilities so that it would not crowd out their prayer time. A minister that says, oh, I don't pray, is like a dentist saying that, look, I don't do teeth. It's our function. And if I, as a minister, am so busy doing good things that I don't have time to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, I'm not performing the ministerial function. This is what ministers are to do. And I get this sometimes. Pastor, what do you do? You only work on Sabbath. (laughs) Oh, have mercy. I wish that was true. Oh, this is your busiest day after all. Actually, it's not. Oh, that must be a wonderful job. One day out of seven. Just chill the rest. I'm going to tell you, there are so many things that just crowd into the ministerial life. Good things, noble things, essential things. And the devil's plan to get the minister is to crowd out the best with the good. And we have to fight for our prayer life. Because there's many good things that are there to steal it away. And I found in my personal experience, just to give you a personal testimony of mine, there are sometimes when I'm getting ready for a sermon that I don't have the opportunity because of many good things that crowd into it. And it comes to what Dwight Nelson ca- calls a Friday night special. You know what I'm talking about? Friday night, midnight. We have a four-month-old, 3 a.m. I am sitting there, struggling. Lord, please, you got to come through for me because I'm about to go up there and lay a goose egg. It's, It's about to be a bomb. And one of the things that has been a struggle in my sermonic preparation is because when it comes to sermon time or prayer time, and I'll be honest, there have been times when I have skimped down my prayer time in order to prepare for the sermon. After all, this is my function. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I, so I scale it back, and there have been times, this is confession, confession is good for the soul, I get up, and I say, Lord, help me in this sermon. <laughs> Ceremonial sermon, and I get into the study. Finally, I said, all right, Lord, I've got to practice what I preach. I increase my prayer time. Martin Luther said he spends three hours a day in prayer, the time most suitable for study. And so I stepped out in faith, and it was a step out in faith, to increase my prayer time and allow the Lord to work in my sermonic preparation. And you'll never guess what happened. My sermonic preparation, I was done on Thursday which is really unprecedented, if you know me. And I told my wife, who am I fooling? I mean, where do we get the information for a sermon anyway? It's a divine transaction that takes place. A divine transaction. Prayer is the primary function of the minister but just so the laity aren't off the hook. Here we go. Prayer in the life of the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in what? What does it say? Prayer. This is the life of the early church. It was not just the apostles that were making prayer their primary activity. It was integral to the life of the community of faith, the vibrant community of faith of the book of Acts that changed the world in one generation, and the byproduct of this dynamic walk with the Lord was exponential growth. It was the byproduct. The disciples got together and prayed. Peter got up, preached a sermon, and three thousand souls were added to the church in one day. Which really has, for me. If I want to be effective in my preaching, it's got to be bathed in prayer. The only reason why Peter's sermon made an impact was because he had just gotten out of the upper room Exponential growth. Let's pick this up. The early church began with 120 people according to Acts chapter 1 verse 15. Then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the church in one day, Acts chapter 2 verse 41, bringing the total to 3,120. Now it's actually more than this because the book of Acts tells us that there were souls added daily to the church. So this is a minimum of the exponential growth. Then 5,000 people were added to the church in one day in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, bringing the total to at least 8,120 souls. This is within months. Within months, the church went from 120 to over 8,000 souls. I have a book in my library from E.M. Bounds, and I was perusing it the other day. E.M. Bounds was a prayer warrior, and notice what he says. This is not a praying age. It is an age of great activity, of great movements, activity. But one in church, but one in church, the tendency is very strong to stress the seen and the material and to neglect and discount the unseen and the spiritual prayer is the greatest of all forces because it honors God and brings Him to active aid. Philip Henry, I'm going to go through these quotations in your study guide very quickly. Be much in secret fellowship with God. It is, see- it is the secret trading act which enriches the Christian. Let prayer be the key of the morning and the bolt at night. The best way to fight against sin is to fight it on our knees. Christ's object Lessons. moving quickly on. Christ was continually receiving from God that he might communicate to us daily. How often? Daily he received a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the early hours of the new day, the Lord awakened him from his slumbers, and his soul and his lips were anointed with grace that he might impart to others. So this is the divine transaction. Jesus received from God daily that he might impart. Philip Henry says it is the divine trading act and the medium, the mechanism, the means through which we receive from God to give is prayer. That's how this works. So many times in ministry, I have gone out on fumes without spending significant time in prayer, depending on my own abilities, my own resources to accomplish an impossible work. Let's not even talk about North America and the world. Let's talk about Anchorage. <laughs> I drive in this city, and it breaks my heart when I see individuals going to the broken cistern of this world for fulfillment for peace for joy there this is an impossible task and yet i try with my own acumen and skill to accomplish what god has never called me to accomplish alone Dr. Joseph Kidder, who's now professor at Andrews Theological Seminary, tells his story of how he was a pastor in Washington State. And I want to read a quote from his book. He said, "I accepted the invitation to this church because I wanted to be a church growth expert." For three and a half years, I employed every technique I knew, working 60 to 80 hours every week. Then something unusual happened. After three and a half years of intense effort and cutting-edge methods, attendance went from 40 to 30. I had become a church decline expert. I heard him tell this testimony himself. He was so depressed and so downtrodden. Can you imagine? Three and a half years, working 60 to 80 hours a week to grow this church, and after all that labor, it decreases. So he goes to his office, writes out his resignation letter to the conference president, types it up, puts it in an envelope, goes to his wife and says, honey, I'm going to resign. Because I figure at this rate of decrease in another three and a half years, it's just going to be me and you. (laughs) So I need to stop and resign with dignity. And his wife says, honey, have you tried praying? And he says, he was insulted. Of course, honey, I'm a pastor. Pastor, how can you ask such a ridiculous question? But he said he had to be honest with himself because he had spent more time strategizing than being spiritual. More time planning than praying. So he made a covenant with God every Monday. He would spend all day in prayer. Went off to the church, got on his knees, He prayed for two minutes and fell asleep and woke up eight hours later. Went home. His wife said, how'd it go? He said, "Uh, I prayed for two minutes, slept for eight hours. He went the next Monday. He said it went up to three minutes, then to four minutes, then to five minutes, and he made a covenant. I'm going to keep on doing this And he found that there was a transformation that was taking place in his own heart, in his own life. You know, prayer doesn't change God, it changes us. And as he spent that time in prayer, there was something that was happening within his own soul. Eight months later, he got up to preach. There were the 30 faithful individuals that were in his congregation that were there every week. And then he looked and he saw four individuals that he had never seen before. He said, oh, surely they must be from out of town. He met them after the service. He said, no, we're not from out of town. We're from across the street. He said, how in the world did you end up here? They told the story. He was working in Alaska, of all places, fishing. His boss sat down one evening and said, if you ever decide to go to church, go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. So he goes back home, out of the blue. His wife says, honey, we need to go to church. He says, I got just the church. It's got to be the Seventh-day Adventist church. So they show up. Pastor Joe Kidder is ecstatic. They are hungry for the Word of God. They're studying two times a week. On the day of their baptism, Pastor Kidder gets up front and gives the testimony of his prayer life and how he pleaded with God for souls and the Lord gave him this wonderful couple. And at that moment, a 69-year-old man got up front in tears, weeping his heart out, and he says, I have four children that don't know the Lord. And if Pastor Kidder can pray, And the Lord gives him these four precious people. I believe that God can give me my children for the Lord Jesus. He said, will you make a covenant with me to pray and hold me accountable? Will you pray with me? The worship service just erupted as person after person after person stood up with a burden on their hearts for their family members that didn't know the Lord. And he says in his book, during that one Sabbath morning, more than 10 people gave similar testimonies. It started. It started a movement of prayer that spread like wildfire. People started to pray before, during, and after church, during the week and on the weekends. They prayed individually and in groups, but always with passion. Eight years later, the church had grown from 30 defeated people to about 500 Fully devoted followers of Christ. Prayer changed my life, and I know that it will change yours. A testimony of a pastor that stepped out and said, Lord, please pour out your Holy Spirit, bring revival to me and to our congregation. Martin Luther says, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. This is what a Christian does. It is a central part of our experience, not a peripheral part of our experience. When given the impossible task of taking the gospel to the world, the first thing that the disciples did was spend significant time in constant prayer. Moving on, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 through 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree on anything they ask for it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three gather in my name there am i with them this is a paradigm shift as it relates to the presence of god in the old testament the presence of god was in a particular place the sanctuary the shekinah glory which literally means the presence that was where the presence of god was Jesus says in the New Testament church, the presence of God is not going to be limited to a place. The presence of God is anywhere where two or three of his followers are gathered, which means that we don't have to be in this building We can be anywhere where two or three are gathered. There he is in the midst of them. A paradigm shift as relates to the presence of God. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of Jesus to his church and it is anywhere and everywhere God's people gathered together. It doesn't have to be a large group. It can be two or three Now, this is not indicating that the presence of God is not with us when we're alone. It is. However, Jesus is emphasizing that there is a special significance to when God's people gather. I would even venture to argue that there is a unique presence of a corporate gathering of God's people. So the Christian walk is both individual and communal. In a community, there is a special, unique presence that attends when two or three gathered, And I believe that this is also true for private prayer and for prayer collectively. Jesus is alluding to the notion of prayer in this passage. He's talking about asking, prayer. And he's indicating that there is something special that happens, not only in private, personal prayer, but when like-minded individuals come together for corporate prayer, there is a unique presence that is there. I want to share with you a few quotations from the pen of inspiration. Ellen White, the promise is made on the condition that united prayers of the church are offered and in answer to these prayers, there may be expected a power, what does it say? Greater than that which comes in answer to private prayer. The power will be given proportionate to the unity of the members and their love of God And for one another. This gives more flesh to the implication that Jesus is giving. When two or three people are gathered, there is a unique presence, a power greater than that is given individually. Moving on, in heavenly places, there is great need of secret prayer, but there is also need that several Christians meet together and unite with earnestness their petitions to God. Moving on very quickly. It is in in the order of God that those who bear responsibilities, I believe that this is talking about ministers and leaders, it is in the order of God that those who bear responsibilities should often meet together to counsel with one another, to pray earnestly for the wisdom which he alone can impart, unitedly, Make known your troubles to God. Talk less. Much precious time is lost in talk that brings no light. Moving on. Those who meet together for prayer will receive an unction from the Holy One. There is great need of secret prayer, but there is also need of several Christians meeting together to unite with earnestness their petitions to God. Let's move on. This is the last quotation on your study guide. This is from Bridget Herman. When we read the lives of saints, we are struck by a certain large leisure which went hand-in-hand with remarkable effectiveness. They were never hurried. They did comparatively few things, and these not necessarily striking or important, and they troubled very little about their influence. Yet they always seemed to hit the mark. Every bit of their life be told. Their simplest actions had a distinction and an exquisiteness, exquisiteness, which suggested the artist. The reason is not far to seek. Their sainthood lay in their habit of referring the smallest actions to God. They lived in God. They acted from pure love towards God. They were as free from self regard as a slavery to the good opinion of others. God saw and God rewarded. What else needed they? They possessed God and possessed themselves in God. Hence the unalienable dignity of these meek, quiet figures that seems to produce such marvelous effects with such humble materials. This is the story of the book of Acts. The early church always seemed to hit the mark because they lived in God, God. They were bathed in prayer. This study, this series, has had a profound effect on my own experience My own prayer life. And as I have recognized my need to not just talk about prayer, but to practice this essential component of what it means not just to be a minister, but what it means to be a Christian. And all of us in this room have people in our lives, loved ones, family members. If they were to die today, they would be lost. They would be lost. And that is a difficult thing to accept. And the posture of prayer, there there is really rules to the great controversy. One of the fundamental and foundational rules is there must be invitation or choice before intervention. God is able to intervene to a certain minimum with everybody. But to go beyond that, there has to be choice and invitation. And the power of prayer is that not only can we consent and invite God's intervention in our lives personally, but the power of intercessory prayer is that we can also invite God to intervene in the lives of other individuals. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he healed the the paralytic. So, when you pray for your son and your daughter, who is apart from God, a prayer of intercession for God's intervention in their life, God is given the permission to intervene. I believe there's a controversy behind the scenes and Satan says, hey, 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 what are you doing? You, you can't do this. He didn't ask for it. She didn't ask for it. And Jesus says, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't ask for it. But his mother asked for it. Amen. And in my early adolescent years as a teenager there were moments in my youth as I was apart from the Lord that I was in a precarious situation about and on the cusp of making certain decisions that would dramatically altered my life that when I came to these decisions there was a certain awareness that came over me. And the recognition that my parents were praying for me. Amen. And I just could not do it. I couldn't. I'm, I'm here today because of my parents' prayers. Pray for your children. Amen. Friends, I believe that here at the Hillside of Church that if individually and collectively we covenant together to pray for the salvation of our loved ones, and for the revival of our corporate body in Christ, that God will pour out His Spirit. And we will see Anchorage, Alaska, turned upside down for the Lord's glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Ah, Lord, we... We come to you today with the recognition, as in that parable, that I have nothing. And that's why we knock, we ask, we ask for your power, your intervention in our lives. And Lord, we come to you individually and corporately asking so that we could give. Lord, there are individuals in our lives who are living apart from you and we pray that you would create in us a desire today a hungering and thirsting to spend time praying for our loved ones to be in the kingdom. Father we pray for individual as well as corporate revival. Bless us we pray for we ask these things in Jesus name.